The following is a production of DifferentBrains.com. Hi, this is Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today we have one of the granddaddies of autism down here in Florida, Dr. Michael Alessandri, who's been a professor down at the University of Miami for about 20 years in psychology. He's also the head of CARD, the Center for Autism-Related Disabilities, University of Miami and Nova Southeastern University, and he does about a gazillion other things. So, welcome, Michael. Michael. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be called a granddaddy. That's a, that's a first. It tells me I'm moving in the right direction. You're a young granddaddy. <laughs> young granddaddy. Uh, you're one of the, you. uh, one of the superstars. Well, thank you. And... Uh, uh, we were talking before, so I want to share with our uh, Different Brains audience how you got into this. You've been doing it for so many years now. Yeah, and it's been a, it's been a great journey. I, um, one of, I'm one of the lucky ones. In 1981, when I graduated high school, my parents put a lot of pressure on me to work because I hadn't worked in high school. I was one of those studious, book-smart kind of kids. And uh, one summer day, I went with a friend of mine to a summer camp for kids with disabilities, and they asked me to spend the day with just one boy because they knew I wasn't going to be there the whole summer. And at the end of that day, after spending one day with this boy, Marlon, who was 10 years old, African-American, with autism, it just changed my life. I went home that night, literally, and told my parents, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I didn't know if I'd be a teacher or a doctor or, or what, but I knew that people with autism would be in my life in some way. And that was, you know, 36 years ago. Now, so. why do you think that was? It's such a, I got chills when you were saying yeah. that, but... Why do you think that is? I still get chills when I tell that story because it was, a, it was like a lightning bolt. It was just one of those magic moments where you kind of discover your path. I think what happened with me and with Marlon was the things that he could do as well as the things that he couldn't do really intrigued me. I was very intrigued by the way that he approached you know, social interaction with me and communication. He wasn't talking. It was com uh, completely nonverbal. But yet he had this capacity to kind of connect with me emotionally and socially. And I felt that. I felt that really deeply, even in one day of an interaction with him. Wow. You know, he was holding my hand, and he stayed, stood very close to me just after an hour or so. We just developed this kind of nonspoken connection. And then just the way he solved problems and he approached different work tasks that he would give him, the way he navigated around the classroom and through the campus, it just intrigued me. You know, because on the one hand, you had this boy who was nonverbal and clearly intellectually disabled in many ways in terms of the way that he uh, was processing information, but yet he had this remarkable capacity to kind of connect on a deep kind of nonverbal level and also solve these ridiculously complex tasks that, that were in front of him as well, like puzzles and, and other kinds of um, activities that we presented him with. So, so just the, the discrepancy between what he could do very easily and what he couldn't do that should have been easy, that was really complicated for him, just really, uh, it just was mind-boggling to me. Yeah, well, are you still in touch with Marlon? I'm not, but you know, it's interesting. I gave a talk a few years ago in New York in the city, and I told this story, because I tell it often, and someone came up to me after and said, I still work at that facility where you did your summer training, and Marlon is still there. He knew exactly who I was talking about. So, you know, I'm not reconnected, but it, uh, it, it occurs to me that I should go back and, and really seek yeah, him out. Yeah, that would be a very and, interesting... And follow up uh, on that connection. Yeah, even yeah. a case study. That's I mean, it changed my life, and in some ways changed the lives of so many other people just through the work that we've been able to do over the years. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's tens of thousands of, of people like Marlon that I've interacted with over the years, so it's pretty impressive well, that he had that influence. 
what you've done with CARD and everything else has been an inspiration to people like me because I'm still amazed that so many of these parents just feel like the Lone Ranger and they don't, they just have, what do I do? Where do I turn? What do I do? And who do I go to? Yeah. And you provide that. We try to. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, CARD still for many people is a great mystery. Often people come up to me and say, I still don't know what CARD does. And my answer is always, well, that's because we do everything, essentially. We you know, take care of the families who need support when they have a child who is, is just diagnosed. And we follow them at, throughout their lives, providing whatever support and assistance they need at any point in their life cycle. So from parent training to school-based consultations to public education and aware, awareness campaigns to case management from the time of diagnosis all the way through the entire lifespan of the individual. So you know, we kind of do so many unique and individual things for families that it's hard sometimes to, you know, in the elevator speech to tell people exactly what CARD is, but because it's all things to so many different people. And now you're chairing the big global impact conference they're having at the Yells Foundation. Tell our audience about that, what that is and what's, what's going to be going on That's there. That's great. I'm really excited about this event. Um, as I think people have started to hear about Ernie Yells, very famous professional golfer and his wife um, have been working tirelessly over the last you know, five, six years to create this amazing institution, um, educational institution, outreach, um, global impact institution in Jupiter, but with tentacles into South Africa and also into Canada and other places around the world. And they are now launching their very first annual conference, and I'm the proud chairperson of the event. And what we thought we would do with this conference is try to highlight what we think are the, the core principles of the ELS Center and the ELS Foundation, and that is it's global, it's uh, intending to have an impact on society and on people with disabilities. And we are hopeful that it will represent the innovative educational technologies that are available in the school as well. So, you know, global, impactful, innovative, and we wanted it to be about science. We really wanted to bring the best of the best, the state of the art researchers and clinicians and public policy people to South Florida. And we've done that. And, and it, we've also called on quite a few of our friends. So this was one of those, if I'm going to chair it, and this is going to be the first one, not only do I want the best, I want the best who also happen to be the nicest people in the field. And we've got them all, and it's really going to be special. And that's going to be April 28th and 29th up in Jupiter. It's going to be a really remarkable event. It's a two-day event along with a VIP dinner where people can sit and casually chat with these researchers, really the thought leaders in the field of autism, people like Ami Klin and Kathy Lord, Roberto Tuchman, Ami, uh, I said Ami Klin already, R Richard Grinker, you know, so many amazing people who've done this remarkable you know, work, either clinically or scientifically, in the autism world for so many years. It's, I, I hope people come, and I hope people appreciate how special this is for Florida. Now, as one of the leaders in autism, how do you approach getting everyone to play nicely in the sandbox together? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, listen, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think I have, I have made my mistakes over the years. Um, you know, when I was younger, I thought the things that I were doing, you know, were more important than what other people were doing. So I understand the journey that agencies go on and that professionals go on. And it's so easy to make the mistake of thinking that you're something different than just part of a bigger, you know, puzzle. And I think I've learned that lesson, you know, really well. And I think the autism community has struggled historically um, in terms of everyone being on the same page and everyone being on the same path. Uh, but I think things have gotten considerably better. I think the last, you know, 
decade or so, we've seen agencies come together, we've seen people start to work a little bit more collaboratively. Even some of the large national institutions that work locally now are a little bit more engaged with the local community. Whereas in the past, you know, it was very difficult for the local community to, to benefit from some of the larger national institutions working on initiatives related to autism. So, uh, you know, I think, I think we're doing better. I think there's always room for growth. At the end of the day, you know, what I've learned in the last 20 years since I've been here in South Florida is that it's, you know, it's, it's always got to be about the client. It's always got to be at the end of the day about the person who is living with autism or with any disability and the family that surrounds them. You know, if, if you lose focus on that, then you've really kind of lost the plot completely. I mean, our role as professionals is to facilitate um, what the individuals with autism and related disabilities want for themselves and want for the community in which they live. If we get in the way of that, you know, we haven't done anyone any good. So we really need to listen more. You know, we do a lot of talking, those of us who are professionals, and I think sometimes we need to step back, silence ourselves, and really listen. And not just listen to words, listen to actions, listen to movements, listen to behavior. You know, listen carefully to what uh, the community is telling us that it needs. And by community, I mean people who actually are affected by, by the conditions that we're supposedly trying to support in some way. Here at Different Brains, the way my, what, what I'm seeing is, is that there's so many similar things for things like that help Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and autism, and strokes, and traumatic brain injury, and schizophrenia and all, you know, they're all different, but there's areas of commonality. And at Different Brains, we're bringing everything under one big tent mm -hmm. and trying to highlight all the great work that each silo is doing. How do you see autism in that spectrum based upon your years of uh, research and clinical and everything you've been doing? Well, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, right, people are people, and labels don't necessarily help describe not only who they are, but, or, but also what they need. So I think it's important that we really just look at the individual. And we, you know, I think th the other thing I wanted to say related to this is, you know, for years, I think the autism community has been, you know, so close, closed off in some ways from the broader disability community. And I think that's been a huge tactical error. I think the, the broader disability community has tremendously more strength when they're operating in sync, when they're operating on really global, impactful initiatives that affect all people regardless of the specific disability that they have. So I think, you know, I think autism, it's so vast and so varied in and of itself that I'm not even sure what it is anymore, honestly, as an as a entity, as a, as a diagnostic structure. I think um, it's, you know, in some ways the people who have that label are very similar to people with anxiety disorders, ADHD, mood disorders, schizophrenia. I mean, you name, you name any label that's out there, there's some similarities that they share. You know, I remember reading a paper years ago about the big three, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and autism, and just the interconnections with every other condition that existed. And I think that's really an important, you know, kind of conceptualization that we apply these labels to characteristics that kind of are joined together in some what seems to be a meaningful way. But at the end of the day, we're just human beings who have different traits. And some of those traits are functional and some of those traits at certain times are not terribly adaptive and functional. And it just helps to look at people as people with particular characteristics, that some that need support and some that are, are relative assets. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Other than no, to you say that, it very yeah, well. I mean, I think That's... it's just we 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 get so lost in trying to identify ourselves as being part of a group, you know, and part of a movement or part of a 
uh, category. And I think we've lost a lot of opportunities to, to create real meaningful societal change. Because at the end, like, and I think I love what you're doing, because it's not about a label. It's about just appreciating that people are different in terms of their neurological profiles, skills, assets, deficits, whatever. We're all unique individuals that have something to offer and also something to gain from interactions with other people. And I think until we get to the point where we just understand that we're all uniquely capable of learning something from someone but also teaching something to someone, you know, we're just going to continue to lag behind in terms of just the bigger kind of policy initiatives that need to happen to make the world a really fully inclusive place for all people. When I was writing the Aspertools book, Dr. Lori Butts uh, took me to task in a fond way, saying, uh, you know, Hackey was, you know, you're writing this Aspertools and you think it's about Asperger's and autism. It's about relationships. It's about all of us because we all have these commonalities and all of this has different varying traits and degrees and, and, and so forth. Um, I mean, I, I, listen, I, as a scientist, I guess, I don't really call myself that, but as an academic, certainly, you know, I understand the need um, for, uh, the need for labels, to, to just put it simply, the need for categories and classifications, you know, particularly within the systems that we work with, whether it be insurance or education or healthcare, you know, you need, you need certain systems to enable you to do certain kinds of work. But at the same time, I think, you know, there, there are just, um, you know, there, there are lost opportunities, as I said before, to create, you know, um, stronger interactions among the different groups to create more effective change and I think we, we, we continue to lose that um, and I don't know that we have figured out the solution yet to getting past that. I remember sitting in a, in a, a session that I was doing it was actually uh, something that was sponsored by the legislators in Florida and we all went to Orlando and there were different panels and different professionals and I remember sitting there and being designated the autism expert and we were talking about broad issues about how Florida could make a more significant change that would support all people with disabilities and I remember thinking this is really the wrong approach you know I shouldn't be here as the autism expert my expertise goes beyond autism it's about understanding people who are you know different who have certain specific needs and certain interests and talents and 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 functional deficits in some ways and we're missing the point by having an autism expert and a down syndrome expert and an yeah. ADHD expert it's like that's and I don't even want to be considered an autism expert you know I just want to be considered a person who's had a career that hopefully has helped some people along the way and hopefully has something to contribute beyond the particular niche area that's been attached to me now tell me how you mold together how did it come to be that the card Center for Autism Related Disabilities mm -hmm. involves University of Miami and Nova Southeastern University. I knew Marlene Sotelo when she was at uh, Nova. Yes, over there. of course. Yeah. And I'm actually, I just had a call with her, and I'm going to be on. I'm going to be with her at this event I'm going to tonight. So. She's terrific. She's the best. Yes, yeah. and she, we, she and I worked together for many years. She made great music too. She's a great musician. Yeah. She's a great person. Yeah, you know, she's a totally dedicated human being to life and career and, yes. and the people she serves. But to answer your question, I mean, so I came to CARD, uh, was recruited 1996 to come and participate in the University of Miami's efforts to build what was then just a, a new center that they'd just gotten funding from yeah. the state for. And so I came in 96. Actually, my, my original plan was to come for one year. I was only going to work 80% time go, and then go back to my tenure track job in California. Um, but after one year, it was clear that I needed to stay and that there was work to be done. It was a very tumultuous year, I will confess. 
Um, you know, not everyone loved the, the young know-it-all doctor from California. So, you know, I learned and from New York or before that. So I learned to, uh, I learned to, I learned to soften my approach to change because sometimes systems don't move because you want them to. They need to move because you kind of caress them a little bit and, and encourage them to move over, over the course of several years. But no, I think, you know, what happened is, we really saw the opportunity to create, um, among all the card centers, there are seven in the state of Florida, but at the time, University of Miami was the only private institution as part of that network. All the other institutions are public. And we really thought that there was an opportunity to join UM and NOVA in a stronger union uh, in terms of the South Florida Card Center. UM, NOVA, both private institutions. NOVA had already been leading the way with the Bowdoin School and the Mailman Siegel Institute and great people like Sue Cabot and others who were there long before the card centers were started. And in fact, Sue, among other people, was one of the reasons there is a card center in the state of Florida. So we just saw an opportunity to connect two universities and make our South Florida program even stronger. And in fact, it's one of the it's probably one of the strongest, if not the only, really strong union between, between these two private universities. So and we're really know, proud of that. You should be, because that may be one of Michael's greatest accomplishments, because God bless these universities, <laughs> but there is a lot of politics involved. It's, you know, it's, it's not easy <laughs> to navigate the politics of any institution, but universities are particularly tricky. You know, they're... Uh, just even the systems and the procedures and the way business operates. I mean, it's it's not easy to get to get sometimes either, even the easiest thing done. But we've done really really well for a long time, and it's a it's one of the longest standing partnerships I think certainly I've ever known. For my speaking for myself, it's been very hard for me to get the um, the gut brain people to talk to the genetics people, mm -hmm. to talk to the vaccine people, to talk to the environmental people, because Everyone thinks it's a zero-sum game, and their thing is what causes everything mm -hmm. instead of it being multifactorial like everything else right. in life. Well, and I think that's, like you said, it's a zero-sum game. People are very focused on funding to yeah. support their particular area of research and their particular um, interest in terms of studies. And so you don't get as much interdisciplinary work as you, as you would like, I think, in the world of autism. I mean, there have been efforts to overcome that. I will say that. I, I remember many years ago when, before Autism Speaks, there was a group called NAR, National Alliance for Autism Research. I actually chaired their scientific affairs committee. Um, I wasn't the scientific expert, but the lay person who oversaw the committee. And I remember you know, several initiatives that they pushed forth then, which were trying to get people from outside of the autism world, but who had interest in immunology and some of the other things that you mentioned to come into the autism world. And beyond that, start to work with other people across disciplines to answer these big questions that can't be answered in one discipline alone. Psychology doesn't have the answer. Just looking at brain you know, neurological functioning is not gonna be the answer. Looking at the gut alone is not gonna be the answer. Genetics, we know, didn't pan out. For years, we were looking for the autism gene. We now know that there is no autism gene. There are many genes that are implicated in, in autism, but again, not alone, not without environmental factors. So I think we've certainly, at least in the course of my career, have moved dramatically from kind of looking for single explanations and looking at more at multidisciplinary explanations. I still think, though, there is a resistance to certain ideas about certain causal yes. potentials. You know, and I don't know enough about you know, the biological sure. aspects of the research to speak to that, but I, I think, in general, we tend to be very arrogant as scientists, as researchers, as professionals. I think we think our thing is the thing. Well, you, you know? also, you also the way we're set up is grant-wise, let's Correct. say, 
is that, and I, I was saying this at when I was speaking at the Aspen Institute, I said, look, you just heard a great uh, talk from one university that showed you the tests that show how the brains were rewiring in Alzheimer's patients with a plant-based you know, Mediterranean-style diet. And you're going to hear later the same findings in an autism grant study. They're both great studies, but exercise, proper diet, nutrition, mm -hmm. these kind of things, they, uh, they help every, mm -hmm. everybody, every brain. And not only your brain, your heart and everything else and so on and so forth. And that gets into the commonality that I'm seeing in the uh, everything that's good for you, good for your brain, is mm -hmm. also good for your body, good for your heart, good for your mental status, good for everything. And there's this uh, grant, I call it the grant syndrome, mm -hmm. where... <laughs> You know, you don't want to give up your piece of the, the pie by well, sharing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the system, the way it's structured, doesn't lead to the kind of creativity and innovation and cross-disciplinary work that maybe most of us would like. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a very fixed kind of system, and I think people sometimes are reluctant to propose too, too much innovative work because it complicates the design, it complicates the feasibility, and I think people who are writing grants are very concerned that whatever they submit to an agency for review should be as streamlined as possible so that they, it's clear the question they're ans asking and the answer they're going to get um, or the, the methods that they're going to use. I think creativity is not generally rewarded in science um, to, to the extent <laughs> that, well, to the extent that, that, that I understand it anyway. I mean, I'm not a, primarily yeah. a researcher, but it's been my observation on the committee that I mentioned to you, but also just existing in the scientific world for so long that we have a tendency to to do one thing, and we have a tendency to do it over and over and over again in very different ways, but we don't really have a natural tendency to kind of reach beyond our, our expertise to, to try to bring in other people and other ideas and freshness to the work that we're doing. So, and I think the system limits that. I think it's not any malintent on the part of researchers. I think there are just some real restrictions in the academic world on innovation and creativity and, and on exploring something truly exploring something that you don't have an idea about, about what it will mean and what it, whether it will work or not. I mean, that, those days are, are really kind of behind us, I think. You know, we, have to, we kind of have to hope for things that people just discover naturally that we then can pursue with some kind of confidence. The people who want to find out more about the L's for Autism and this great uh, Autism Innovations and Global Impact Conference, they can go to the website and how else can they find out more about you and what you're doing and the ELS Foundation? Well, anyone's free to contact me at umcard.org. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Just find my picture and click on my face, and you'll get an email to me very effectively and efficiently. And for the ELS Foundation, if anyone wants to just Google Global Impact uh, and Autism Innovations, that would be fantastic. They'll be able to find it there. Michael, thank you so much for being here at Different Brains. We're going to continue this conversation next time. And thank you so much. And keep up the great work you're doing at the CARD, the Center for Autism-Related Disability at University of Miami and Nova Southeastern. And also the upcoming Autism Innovations and Global Impact Conference hosted by the ELS for Autism. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For more information, visit us at 
differentbrains.com.